So this morning, um, obviously we're embarking on a number of new things. Obviously it's a new season here at Kent uh, Hill Park. And um, as I say, we're going to be doing this every other week uh, leading up towards Easter. And then secondly, um, we're going to be launching a, a brand new teaching series this morning called The Story of God. And our our goal over the coming weeks is really to take some time to explore the kind of big story of the Bible. And um, some some people refer to it as kind of like the grand narrative uh, of the scriptures. A, A story that we often say starts in a garden, Eden, Genesis 1, and it ends in a garden city. Uh, a renewed heaven and earth, Revelation 21. And, and this kind of theological framework, this way of approaching the scriptures is kind of key to our identity as a church. After all, you know, we call ourselves Garden City uh, and we want to be a people who are immersed in God's story. That we, that we would be men and women who find ourselves in the story that God is writing. And this story can be um, really broken down into four distinctive parts. And um, uh, they, they are these creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or the renewal of all things. That we see in the opening pages of the scriptures, God creates all things. And it doesn't take long, does it? You know, just a couple of chapters in. And calamity happens. Uh, Sin enters into the story. Uh, We sometimes call that the fall of man, the fall of creation. And then really, then on from there, God is is on this redemptive journey, which is fully realised in the person of Jesus, isn't it? He he comes and uh, he lives uh, a life and he is uh, he teaches all these amazing things and then he um, dies on the cross, is resurrected in power and, and that redemptive element of the story becomes a full reality. And then ultimately God is in the business of making all things new that eventually we will have this renewed heaven and renewed earth and, um, and, and God will make it as new again. And so this story can be broken down into those four compartments. But, but for the longest time as Christians, I think sometimes we've been guilty of focusing on, um, on the two central plots of this story, which is that fall and redemption. And whilst those things are important parts of the story, when we focus on just those things, we kind of end up with this truncated or half story. It's, it's, it's kind of like um, showing up to the cinema sort of 30 minutes late. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that. You know, you kind of stumble over people in the dark. Eventually, you get to your seat. The movie's started and you're kind of like, what the heck is going on? Because you've missed all those kind of key character building moments. And you're kind of left wondering, why, why does he do that? Or why did that happen? Because you've missed the key elements of how the story started. 
But not only is it like showing up to, the, to a film half an hour late, it's also like leaving half an hour before the end. Um, and, and so you kind of, you get, you, get, you get to the, you miss those kind of closing moments where the story reaches its climax, uh, where we get to see the true meaning and outcome of what the story was all about. And because we've often had this kind of truncated half-story approach to God's story, we've, we've ended up, and we would never say it like this, we would ne- I'm, I'm conscious of that, but we've ended up with this underlining story that's about what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management, where we've made the story all about managing sin where we've re- re- kind of reduced God's story to our requirement for forgiveness, where we subsequently warehouse Christians in, in churches, and once they pop their clogs, they get to go to heaven when they die. And so we've kind of reduced the Christian story to this kind of, there's a problem with sin, and you need to do something about it. And so whilst that is true, and that's an important part of the story, hopefully, as we explore this series, we will begin to realise that God's story is way more holistic than that. That that actually, it's not a story that starts with sin. It doesn't even start with, you're a sinner. But it actually starts with God. God. And a God who creates, a story that starts with creation. But before we jump into those different parts of the story, I want to, and before we kind of unpack those different themes that I've talked about, I want to start by exploring the source of the story itself. I, wanna, I want us to think this morning about the Bible um, and think about what the Bible is. Because the truth is, if we're going to spend a lot of time over the coming weeks exploring the big story that this book has to tell, then the reality is we have to understand the nature of this book, don't we? We have to understand um, what, how, you know, if we're going to orientate our lives around the words of this book, um, then we need to understand something about it if we're going to start off on, on the right foot. Uh, and so I'm not sure we will fully grasp the implications of what I've just said, uh, unless we can get a handle again on what is this thing we call the Bible. And so I want to begin this series, and I'm being a little bit provocative, uh, but I want to begin this series by asking the question, what's the problem with the Bible? The problem with the Bible. So let me, let me begin with a couple of disclaimers. Um, I'm conscious in a room like this, we can all find ourselves uh, in different places. And some of us will have some different ideas. Some of us might think, well, the Bible, isn't it just another book? You know, and isn't it much, isn't that much different to any other book that you find on any other shelf? Whilst uh, at the same time, there will be others amongst us who believe this is God's word. It's God's purposely written every word found in this book through a series of human authors. Maybe you don't know what you think about this book. 
Maybe you haven't fully resolved uh, what the Bible really is or even what you believe about it. And so my my disclaimer is this. We need to recognise that in a room, even this size, from the outset, we all come at this from different places. We all have different perspectives on what this book is and how we interact with it. And I want us to know that that's okay. That that really is okay. The second disclaimer is this. Uh, As we take some time to unpack this overarching narrative, uh, some of us may end up with more questions than answers. And that's okay too. Okay, that's okay too. As um, one theologian says, he says, churches need an atmosphere where questions and queries about truthfulness are encouraged. And to take the questions of the Bible seriously, believing that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. See, sometimes we can be afraid of questions, can't we? We can be fearful of curiosity or doubt. I'm not sure we need to fear anything. And, and, and would we just accept that as we try and retell God's big story found in the Bible, some of us might find some really good answers uh, in the coming weeks and months. And some of us may end up with some more questions. And that really is okay. I'm totally comfortable with that. I'm, I'm totally at ease with that. So what's the problem with the Bible? What's the problem? The first problem I believe that as, and I'm, I'm generalizing, I know here, but the first problem I believe is that as the church in the 21st century, particularly in the West, we have become biblically illiterate. We've become biblically illiterate. We live in an age where we love podcasts and sermons and we love sort of devotional thoughts about the Bible, which is good in a context. But actually reading the Bible and knowing how this story, this collection of 66 books uh, are working together, how they fit together, how we are to approach them has in many ways become for many of us, a lost art. And why is Bible, biblical literacy so low? And I think one of the main reasons is because we don't read. We don't read anymore. And particularly, we don't read books uh, anymore. We do read threads and blogs and posts and social media comments. But many of us... Uh, have a hard time getting lost in a book or getting lost in a story. And so when it comes to a book like the Bible, which is actually quite strange, isn't it? It's, it's strangely unique. I mean, it's, it's leather bound. Who leather binds books nowadays? You know, it's, and it's got this weird kind of thin paper that apparently you can roll joints with in prison. Um, you know, and it has these strange words in it and, and it has these strange names and, and, and we, we find it really hard to engage with in a meaningful way. And, and, and so in some ways, the Bible itself makes itself difficult for us to engage with. The other problem is that 
uh, is that we all live with the realities of consumerism. And as consumers, we believe the shortest route to improvement is through purchasing new things. And, and so what ha- we have a tendency of doing is in our attempt to address an issue, say like biblical literacy, we think by solving our problem is that we'll just buy more Bibles. Anybody got like a vast collection of Bibles um, on their shelves? Because that's, that's the way our culture's wired us, isn't it? That, you know, we solve this problem, we just got to buy our way out of it. Uh, and I'll just buy another Bible. I'll just buy that translation or that, that way. Oh, I like the cover of that one. You know, <laughs> that one will fit in my bag. You know, whatever it might be, we just think, well, I'll just buy my way out of it and uh, it will solve the problem. How many of us have realised that we can own multiple Bibles but never read a single one? Do you know the Bible is the best-selling book year after year? Something like 25 million Bibles are sold every year. And so it's ironic, isn't it? The Bible remains the best-selling book, but I'd contest it's the best-selling book that's never read. Now, some of us, the problem we might have with the Bible is that um, we've, we've opted to distance ourselves from the Bible because it creates too much conflict for us. It creates too much conflict. Take, for example, the, the book of Joshua. If you've ever read the book of Joshua, some, some people might think, wow, you know, look what happens when God's people trust, trust him. You know, look, look how God came through for Joshua, how he destroyed his enemies and brought victory. Uh, and he brought his people into the promised land. Look, look at how amazing God is. And then some other people can read Joshua and think, how is this not God commanded genocide or ethnic cleansing? How can a, a loving God command the death of innocent women and children. How could this be a sacred text? And so we become conflicted, don't we? we, we uh, with what we read. And so we choose to distance ourselves because we don't know how to resolve the conflict. My hope is that as we journey over the coming weeks and months, as we begin to unpack God's story and the redemptive nature of God, as it becomes part of who we are as a church, that we will begin to figure out how do we wrestle with some of those conflicts? How do we deal with some of those things? The other, the other, the other way that we distance ourselves from the Bible is, is because we often wrestle with meaning from the Scriptures. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in a number of his letters in the New Testament, encourages Christians to greet one another um, with 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 a holy kiss. How many of you received a holy kiss this morning? Um, um, You didn't, because it would be weird, wouldn't it? You know, line up. You know, uh, um, it it, it just wouldn't happen. And so at some stage, someone has had to wrestle through that even though the Bible says, greet one another with a holy kiss, it doesn't mean that now. 
It doesn't mean that. And at some point, we've decided that it doesn't mean that anymore. And what we've opted for is a weird, awkward Christian side hug. You know, and so that's, that's kind of, you know, if you're wondering, what's that side hug thing? That's a holy kiss. Uh, that, that's how we've interpreted it uh, now. And so figuring out meaning from the Bible is a challenge. And we have to do the hard work, don't we? We have to figure it out. And that's something we have to continually do. Mark Twain once said, in the Bible, you can find both the poison and the cure. And isn't that often true? The Bible, historically and sadly, has been the poison that has started wars, that's allowed sexism, slavery, genocide. But it's also been the cure. That, that there have been people who have read the scriptures, who have worked towards peace and reconciliation in places of war and conflict. That it has this ability to empower women and other minorities. It, 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 it conquers racial divides and it continues to motivate people to end things like slavery. So if there are so many problems with the Bible... Why don't, we just, why don't we just get rid of it? You know, why don't we just toss it out? Why do we keep reading this book? Why don't we just move on? Well, I would say the reason why we don't do that, the reason why we keep reading the Bible is because we're followers of Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. And Jesus was obsessed with the Bible, or at least the version that he had, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus, by his teens, more than likely would have memorized his version of the Bible. He would quote from it. He would teach from it. He would argue how best to interpret the Bible. He would pray the Bible. Uh, His whole way of living and seeing the world was shaped by the Bible. And because we are followers of Jesus, it's our aim and goal to have the same kind of relationship that Jesus had with the scriptures. So if you've got a Bible this morning, uh, it's good to bring a Bible to church. If nothing else, you can just check that I'm not lying. Um, So I'd encourage you, bring a Bible to church. Um, But if you've got a Bible, I'm going to quickly look at how Jesus relates to the scriptures. Um, and um, how he places authority in the scriptures. And so if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And we're just going to, I'm not going to read the whole passage, I'm just going to pull out some different verses. Matthew chapter 4, starting from the beginning. And so we're going to be looking at a a fairly well-known portion of scripture that tells us about Jesus's temptation uh, in the wilderness and um, and, and, so, and so Jesus has been um, has started his earthly ministry he's been baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit uh, and then um, it tells us that he He was led out by the Spirit. Uh, It says, The Spirit of God led him to the wilderness where he fasted and prayed 
for 40 days. I'm meant to be fasting for 21 days. I'm struggling. Um, But yeah, 40, 40 days. And it's in this place of Jesus going to be in the wilderness that he encounters the tempter the, or Satan or the devil, whatever you want to call him. Uh, now, the first time we meet the devil is in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? And we're going to look at that in a few weeks' time. Uh, but in Genesis 3, the devil, the tempter, um, Satan, he comes to Adam and Eve and ultimately he, he poses a question to them that makes them uh, second-guess God's promise. And he says to them, did God really say? And so Jesus, in the wilderness, in a moment of weakness, you know, he's fasting, um, experiences or encounters Satan who comes to tempt him. It says this in verse 3. Satan speaks to Jesus. He says, if you're the son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written. See, Jesus' response to temptation uh, is to respond with scripture itself. It's like Jesus' mind is so saturated with the scriptures in such a way that when Satan tries to tempt Jesus in a moment of weakness, Jesus comes back and he quotes the the scripture and verse. And so in this moment, Jesus, in verse 4, he quotes Deuteronomy. And he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus quotes uh, the scripture to the devil. Now, so what happens now is that Satan is like, well, too, can play at that game, Jesus. I know the Bible too. And, uh, and, and I can quote scripture. And, and, and this is what the Satan does. Verse 5, the devil, uh, he took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Jesus, if you are who you claim you are, then you should just throw yourself off this building. He said, after all, it's written, isn't it, Jesus? In Psalm 91, it says, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, Jesus knows the scripture, and I'm sure he knew Psalm 91. And he knows that Psalm 91 doesn't mean what the devil is trying to make it mean in this moment. And it's kind of like Jesus says, I see what you're doing here, Satan, and you're not going to win this. You're not going to win. Checkmate. Uh, You might be able to quote scripture, but... It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus uses this passage from Deuteronomy 6 to repurpose, reshape our understanding of Psalm 91. And then lastly, we see this third temptation. And and basically, the devil tries to get Jesus to bow down and worship him as if that was going to happen again in verse 8 and the and the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor all of this i will give you he said 
if you bow down and worship me. It's kind of like the devil's running out of options now. And he's just thinking, well, maybe I can just catch him off guard. You know, maybe I could just trick him into worshiping me. But Jesus comes back, verse 10, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he uses his authority and understanding of the scripture to fight back. Now remember this, Jesus is the son of God, right? Yeah, he is. Yeah, just, just in case you're sure. Jesus is the son of God. And he has all the resources of heaven at his disposal. And so when he's up against Satan tempting him, my guess is he had enough power to deal with that problem. He could have, he could have fought Satan off. But instead, each time he's tempted, he uses the word of God to combat Satan. He combats him with the truth and authority of the scriptures. And three, so three times he's tempted and three times he responds, it is written. Now, I also think that each time Jesus uses the scriptures to fight against temptation, he also begins to reveal the power of the scriptures. We see in this, uh, this first temptation, Jesus shows us that God's word is sufficient. That God's word is enough. How many of us in times of need look to so many other places to get our needs met? Yet what Jesus reveals is that God's word is enough. That we can feast on this book in such a way that it feeds even our flesh. The second temptation shows us that God's word is coherent, that it all fits. But there will be times when we read the Bible and it seems to contradict um, uh, other parts of the Bible. And so, you know, Satan tries to do this, doesn't he? He says, Psalm 91, Jesus. Um, And Jesus is like, that isn't what it means. But Jesus doesn't say, because Psalm 191 doesn't mean that, we could just throw Psalm 91 away. He doesn't, he doesn't say that at all. He says, if you're going to quote scripture, you need to hold it together with this other scripture that says, you know, it says that, you know, we shouldn't put the Lord, our God, to the test. And of course, God will protect us. Of course, his protection is there. But equally, we're not supposed to jump off clifftops. That would be a stupid thing to do and so we have to learn to hold the scripture's intention and we do that because we believe there's something coherent about the scriptures something trustworthy and then the third temptation Jesus shows is that God's word is authoritative where does the bible get its authority how can this book tell me what to do And my simplest answer is it gets its authority from God. That the Bible gets its authority as God's word. And we as followers of Jesus trust in the Bible. And here's here's why I think we should trust the Bible, because Jesus trusted it. 
We should trust the Bible because Jesus trusted it, not the other way around. Matthew 28, 18 says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's Jesus speaking, not me speaking, Jesus speaking. What he didn't say was all authority in heaven and earth have been given to the Bible. He didn't say that. And Andrew Wilson, the New Frontiers theologian, he says this, he says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered, as we've already said, or my answers remain unpopular. We trust the scriptures because Jesus trusts the scriptures. So God's word is sufficient, it's coherent, and it's authoritative. Let's just finish with this. John five thirty nine. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day. And he, he says this to them. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. And that's a noble thing, isn't it? To study the word of God with diligence. Uh, that would be something for us to be proud of as a church. That we would be men and women who who love and cherish this book in such a way that we are diligent with it. But look what Jesus goes on to say. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I would argue that as we unpack the story of God, that this book is ultimately all about Jesus. It all points to him. But I think the problem is, is that we can sometimes end up in a place where we know a bunch of stuff about this book. And we totally miss the point of what the book is for. And so as we seek to read and study the scriptures, I think Jesus would equally invite us to seek him. And one of the things that I want us to constantly remember over the coming weeks as we do this series is, is that the Bible, this, this book, is a, is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. That's ultimately where it's got to lead us to, hasn't it? It's got to lead us to him. And so as we take this time in the coming months, unpacking the big story that this book has to tell, let's not treat this as something that just gives us some superior knowledge. Like we become all puffed up and proud. Oh, aren't I good? I know 15 Greek words, you know, uh, or anything like that. Let's not do that. Instead, what would it look like if we let this book aid us to fall more in love with the person of Jesus? 
that as we journey through God's story and as we begin to find our place in the story that he's writing, that we would step into a place of depth, not in knowledge, but in relationship. That we would step into a depth of relationship with him in a way that perhaps we've never encountered before. Because we, we kind of see this book in a different light. We, we see the story it has to tell. The coherent story it has to tell. How God is working out his redemptive purposes through people, from generation to generation. That we would, we would kind of wrestle with the things that conflict us. We would, we would be able to have our questions and, 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 and actually rely on God for the answers as we open up his word together. There's a couple of things, a couple of resources I want to point us to as we do this together. The first um, is a little book. It's a, it's a theological book. It can be a bit heavy. But um, Andrew Wilson, who I quoted, um, uh, Unbreakable, that's a, a great little book. Um, but a, a book that you might want to pick up is by Eugene Peterson, the guy who authored the message called Eat, Eat This Book. Don't literally. Uh, but just a, a great primer, I think, for the for understanding the Bible in a fresh and new way. So why don't we, why don't we stand? Oh, look at that. I have.